Year after year these days, we uh, read studies that talk to us about the decline of Christianity and the decline of religion in general in society. You see them all the time, particularly in Europe. You read about countries like the Czech Republic where 90% of the people now say that they have no religious affiliation, uh, no interest in religion at all. Or places like Great Britain where the number stands at about 70% of people who say that they do not identify at all as religious or with any religious faith. In the U.S. it is 35%, but rising rapidly every year at an alarming rate. And as we watch the decline of Christianity, we see equally a rapid deterioration of all the the fundamental institutions of our world and society from the family to the rule of law, governments, uh, relationships all around. And anyone who loves the truth and loves righteousness naturally laments at these developments. We look with concern at what it will mean to live in the new landscape that is emerging all around us. But as bad as times may get and as dire as it seems... Scripture pictures a day of spiritual darkness and defection and decline that makes any kind of spiritual darkness we see today pale in comparison. It is called, among other things, the apostasy. Not just any apostasy, not just any rejection or decline or defection, but a a, a decline spiritually or a defection from the truth about God at every level and in every way of society. It'll be such a singularly dreadful time that Paul, when he talks about it, doesn't refer to it as just any apostasy, but he refers to it as the apostasy, the singular, preeminent, ultimate turning away from religion, from God and from Christ, unlike anything the world has ever seen. And at the forefront of this anti-God movement, this anti-religion movement, will be a man who we generally refer to as the Antichrist. He's known by a number of different titles as you read throughout the pages of Scripture. Daniel calls him the prince who is to come and famously pictures him in his prophecies as a little horn that arises among all the others and and overthrows them. Ezekiel calls him Gog of the land of Magog. Revelation calls him the beast. This morning we look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 at a passage where Paul refers to him as a number of different things. He's called the man of lawlessness or the lawless man or the one who is opposed to God, the one who exalts himself above God. He's called the son of destruction, the one who's doomed to destruction, the one who Paul says his coming is by the activity of Satan, The one who deceives with wicked deception. All of those refer to the same instigator, the same person who is destined to come by God's design and God's decree. He's coming. And he's the focus of what Paul has to say in much of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
And while he doesn't use the specific term antichrist in this passage, the language and the descriptions that Paul assigns to him make it plain. As we'll see, Paul's descriptions of this man come straight out of the book of Daniel. He uses the language and the phraseology of Daniel and the description of him fits in every way the embodiment of everything the Antichrist stands for. The Antichrist was a frequent topic in the early church. You find it all over the scripture from the teaching of Jesus Christ in, for example, Matthew chapter 24, to the apostle John who writes to the believers in 1 John and says, children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. This is something he knew they had heard. He was confident they had heard of it. Maybe from himself, maybe from the other apostles, but he had no doubt that they were aware. John actually says that at the time he was writing in the late 80s or early 90s, that many Antichrists have already come. He recognized that throughout history, and especially in his own time, there had always been leaders who fit the profile of the Antichrist. There had always been anti-God people, anti-Christianity people. There had always been those arrogant, strong men who sought to exalt themselves above God, who, who desired and even demanded worship for themselves. Even in his own day, there were a number that fit the profile. And he knew that already there were many who had gone out. They opposed Christ. They sought to take the place of Christ. Roman emperors opposing Christianity, declaring themselves already to be deity, all the way down to our own time. Strong men like Hitler in, uh, in Germany or Stalin in Russia or Mao Zedong in China who oppressed the church, who demanded almost godlike devotion. But none of these men were the final Antichrist. None of them who arose ever fulfilled or, or fully fit everything that the Antichrist is. John simply recognizes That Satan was always and is always, even to this day, grooming leaders who have such a vile hatred of Christ and such an arrogant self-love in their own heart, they would easily be molded into the final form as the opportunity is given to Satan to lift those men into place. And yet none of them are the ultimate antichrist. The early church knew that these men were out there, but they knew that there was a final one coming. Whether they heard it from Jesus, or from John, or from the Apostle Paul, or whether they just studied the Old Testament, books like Ezekiel and Daniel that give extensive prophecies and details about the Antichrist himself. And so when John or when Paul or anyone else made mention of the Antichrist, it wouldn't have been in in any way unfamiliar territory for these believers. It would have been something they surely would have heard of, they would have been very familiar with, something that would have been uh, discussed from, from the very beginning with every one of them in their Christian walk. 
Now that is certainly true as you come to the book of Thessalonians, as we've already seen going through 1 Thessalonians and now in 2 Thessalonians, that discussions of the end times, what we call eschatology, were fundamental to what Paul taught this church. I've read a number of places and I think it's true that that while in our typical systematic theology textbooks, we we would normally put the doctrine of the end or eschatology, we would put that at the back of our books. For a typical Jewish person like the Apostle Paul, the end times weren't something that you dealt with at the end. They were something that you dealt with at the beginning. They began their discussions of their theology With how everything will end. How everything will culminate with the promises to Abraham and to David and to to the prophets or through the prophets. That's how they began their discussions. And so it's not surprising that the Apostle Paul, as he goes out to not only evangelize, but initially disciple these believers, that he would begin at the very beginning giving them a framework and an understanding of the end times. And as a part of that, he gave them this teaching of the Antichrist. Now, we saw that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, that this discussion of the end times was core and central to what these believers had, had been weaned on. But Paul is writing now in 2 Thessalonians, uh, six months or a year later, he's writing this because the church at Thessalonica had become distressed and disturbed by a misunderstanding of the end times. It's understandable why that might happen. As we saw already in chapter 1, they had been suffering intense persecution and Paul had written this letter to comfort them and remind them about God's justice. To remind them that the things they're presently suffering are actually being used by God to establish His just judgment in the end. God was already at work bringing about justice through the things they're presently suffering. It's understandable as they go through that though, that under the intense persecution, that they could be led to believe that they were in the time of the Antichrist. That someone had, in fact, led them to believe that. Which is, in fact, what happened. Someone had infiltrated the church and misled the church, apparently by means of a letter, to the effect that they had entered into already the time of God's judgment on the earth. The time known as the day of the Lord. And Paul wants to write this, and particularly chapter 2, he wants to reassure them that this is not the case. And he does so by reminding them of what he's already taught them. Things concerning the nature of that time, the day of the Lord. Things concerning the nature of the Antichrist himself. And even things concerning how the The Antichrist is being restrained even now until the time he's to be revealed. And this is what Paul says. You can pick it up really in verse 1 of of chapter 2. 
He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you've been taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and, our, and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now there are a lot of things to cover in these 17 verses. And uh, we're going to, won't shock you, take a few weeks to go through this. Because there's a lot of background material. There's a lot of things that you might say are assumed or unsaid, but clearly alluded to in these words by the Apostle Paul. As I've already said, Paul uses particularly much of the language of the Old Testament prophets alluding Uh, mostly to the book of Daniel. And we can connect those dots to help us understand what he had already taught them about this Antichrist. Paul doesn't restate everything in the background for these Thessalonians, but by what he does give us, it becomes plain enough what he taught them that we can understand the framework of his end times argument. So what we're going to see here are really a number of explanations from the Apostle Paul, eight, I believe, that you could identify, eight explanations that detail the anguish that these Thessalonians were experiencing 
as well as their anticipation or their source of hope at the end of the age. Eight explanations that identify the source of their distress and the source of their hope at the end of the age. The first one, really the only one that we'll have time to get to this week, is in verses 1 and 2, and it explains the distress of these Thessalonians, the distress of the Thessalonians. And you can pick it up really at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2 with a request from the Apostle Paul. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarm. He uses two words to describe their state of mind. Shaken, which basically means to become emotionally unsettled, rattled, we might say, distraught. And he uses the word alarmed, which is a word for being surprised, startled, and and also carries with it the sense of fear that comes from that kind of surprise. They were, as we might say, jittery. Someone might even say they've reached their wit's end. They were so disturbed. And Paul suggests that all of this happened very quickly, or you might even translate it easily. They were easily led into this frame of mind. They let themselves fall into this, by Paul's estimation, far too easily. This should not have happened. They should have known better. They should have had a better defense. But they didn't. And they allowed themselves to be stirred up. And the source of all of this was what Paul says was a message. Either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He gives them three options here, perhaps because he's not exactly sure how they heard this or more likely because the deceivers who were trying to establish their credibility based it really on all three of these things. They claimed perhaps that Paul had received a new prophecy by the Spirit and that they had heard him teach or preach in the spoken word and that they even produced or confirmed it with what they claimed was a letter, a forged letter as it was, as it were, from the Apostle Paul. It appears at least that this reference uh, to the letter was an early appearance of what we call pseudepigrapha, false writings or false letters. In the coming centuries after this would become a, a huge problem for the church. There would be dozens that we know of, perhaps even hundreds more that we don't know of, letters and epistles and gospels And all kinds of things that would be written in the name of the apostles and the name of close associates of Jesus, all of them were false. I mean, even today you have have these people who are trying to foist upon the church and prop up these same pseudonymous documents, whether it's the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Barnabas, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Judas even, Or something they call the letters of Paul and Seneca or the Pauline epistle to the Laodiceans, the gospel of Mary. They just, the list goes on and on and on. And people are still trying to get people, 
They're still trying to get the church to somehow accept these documents as genuine. In the case of the Thessalonians, this was one of the earliest, if not the earliest, false letter from the Apostle Paul. It came around 50 or 51 AD based on the the timing of this letter, very early. And, And perhaps because of how Paul clearly deals with it right here, it is not something that was passed on to others. It was probably destroyed as a result of Paul's clear dealing with it in this letter. But over in chapter 3, verse 17, we can even take note of a practice that Paul himself probably began to adopt in order to counteract these kinds of forgeries. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of the genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Paul typically would have dictated his letters to what they call an amanuensis, a scribe who would sit there and and hear the Apostle Paul and write down everything he said. But, But he took up this practice apparently at this point where he, near the end of the letter, would pick up the pen himself and literally print the letters in his own hand as a sign of genuineness. Very similar to what we have today in terms of signatures on our letters. So Paul was hoping to head off these kinds of forgeries so he didn't have to deal with these kinds of things in the future. But for the time being, he must deal with this letter that had been received by the Thessalonians. And the content of the letter is pretty clear. It suggests, as Paul says at the end of verse 2, that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord. We've talked about this already in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This was a well-established concept in biblical teaching. It was well established in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. Not as a a moment in time. It doesn't refer to a single day, a single moment in time, but it refers to a season, a whole series of events, just like we use it sometimes in, in English when we talk about back in our parents' day or back in the day or, or something like that. This would have been referring to a whole series of events, a whole series of years together. It was a doctrine that arose originally out of the prophets, which basically described the day of God's judgment, a time of God's judgment. You see it, first of all, in the book of Amos, around 750 B.C., Amos was the first to use it. He was prophesying in a time when Israel was experiencing much prosperity, when they were, if you will, presumptuous of God's blessings that would be guaranteed to them no matter how they responded to Him, no matter how they lived, no matter how shallow their faith was. And Amos comes and preaches to them. He takes up the language of the day of the Lord Already, apparently, something that they would have been familiar with before Amos ever coins the word or takes the, uses the word, it was already in the vernacular of the people. It may have been a phrase used by one of the unnamed prophets or a spokesman of the Lord, but, but it had already passed into the culture as a time uh, when God would conquer all of his enemies, when he would conquer all of his foes. And there were people who were looking forward to this. They longed for it because they assumed that the Lord's foes 
were the foes of Israel. That those were one and the same. God's foes must be our foes. But Amos came with a startling message. That the day of the Lord would actually be a day when God sweeps away his enemies. But his enemies are not outside of Israel, but they're within. He says in Amos 5, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him and went into a house and leaned against the wall and the serpent bit him. It's not the day, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, gloom with no brightness in it. And from that time, the basic theme of the day of the Lord didn't change, whether it was taken up by Isaiah or Zephaniah or or Jeremiah, or any of the prophets, it was a day of judgment. It was a day of vengeance and wrath and destruction and despair. It was a day of God bringing terror across the face of the earth. It was not something that anyone would look forward to. It was a time of gloom, a time of distress. Four times it is called the day of vengeance. Six times it is called the day of doom. Over and over again, you get this picture of cataclysmic, universal judgment across the face of the earth. Throughout history, this is the way it's always been understood. And there were precursors to it. There were days of the Lord for particular nations. Edom had a day of the Lord. Moab had a day of the Lord. But even as the prophets talked about this day, they would always compare it to the final day. The day when God's judgment would be not against one nation, but against all the nations. Those earlier preludes, if you will, were just a microcosm of how things were going to end, and it was awful. Times when he destroyed entire nations in just a matter of years through famine and disease and earthquake and wars. Even as you come to the New Testament, you see those same kinds of things. God using famines and earthquakes and natural disasters, catastrophic events, disease, chaos, all of this to bring judgment against the nations. It doesn't end there when you are in the book of Revelation. You see all kinds of horrors coming even from the heavens themselves. In all of this unfolding in increasingly rapid fashion, judgments falling down from the sky, rising up from the earth. An awful day. So this is the picture of the day of the Lord. It was a picture that Paul had already painted for them when he was with them. It was a picture he reminded them of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that this was a day of judgment. And yet this was what was contained in this false letter. This is what was claimed. This is what these believers were led to believe, that the day had already arrived. And you can even understand that from, from the way that Paul phrases it here in First Thessalonians, or Second, Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.2. He talks about the day of the Lord has come. That is a perfect 
uh, a perfect verb in the Greek, meaning that it's not future, the day of the Lord will come. It's not present, the day of the Lord is coming. It's not past or aorist, the day of the Lord um, came. It is perfect, meaning that the day of the Lord came in the past but continues on in the present. It has arrived and has continuing impact. It's not just a moment in time. It's not just a a, a brief few hours or even a brief few days. It is something Thessalonians clearly understood to be an ongoing activity. There are some Christians who think about the second coming of Christ and they think about even the day of the Lord, as an all-at-once event that everything you read about when it comes to the end of this world all basically takes place in a couple of hours, if not a couple of days. It's all sort of compacted together. But none of that, none of that kind of concept fits with what the Scripture actually teaches. It doesn't fit with everything the Old Testament says about the day of the Lord, it doesn't fit with the biblical descriptions of that day, and it doesn't fit or make any sense with the context of this passage in Second Thessalonians. I mean, first of all, if Paul, if Paul had taught them that the second coming of Christ was just a single, uh, relatively brief event, that all took place on a single day or at a single moment in time, then the deception of this false letter would have never gotten off the ground. Because they would have clearly understood that the day of the Lord would have been followed immediately by a transition to what we might call the perfect state or the eternal state. When all sorrow and tears will be wiped away, when every evil will be defeated. But they obviously understood the end times differently. That's what exposed them to this kind of deception. They obviously have been taught that the day of the Lord would be an event that began but then continued on for some time. And the deception here is not in the nature of the day of the Lord. It is in the idea that the day of the Lord has already arrived. That's what Paul is correcting He doesn't correct them by saying, hey, don't you remember that the day of the Lord is an all-at-once event? He doesn't correct them by by re-establishing this idea of a brief day of the Lord. He corrects them by reminding them that the day of the Lord will not begin until certain events arrive first. It would arrive with these events and it would continue on for a number of years. As Daniel tells us, as the Revelation tells us, it'll continue on for seven years. It is this period of time that we sometimes call the Great Tribulation. A day of darkness and a day of gloom, a day of trouble, a day of intense persecution against anyone who names the name of Christ and a day of intense suffering for everyone else. And that's why the Thessalonians were so disturbed. This is why they were so unsettled by all of this. 
As I said earlier, they've been suffering intense persecution themselves by the hands of the Jews in Thessalonica. Their world seemed to be fraying at the edges, pulling apart the seams, we might say. They understood uh, that this kind of hatred and animosity against the truth were going to be a part of this final period of time. And it wasn't a stretch, at least in their minds at this point, to believe that that's this, all of this could be signs of the day of the Lord. That suffering alone was difficult enough, but what really disturbed them was the fact that they had been not only suffering, but had passed into this very specific time of judgment and turmoil. They had already experienced suffering. They had already known that. But what really distressed them, what was different now than in 1 Thessalonians, is that something had changed. The day of the Lord had arrived. And it was continuing all around them. Obviously, as Paul will go on to say, the day has not arrived. It had not arrived then. hasn't arrived yet. And the difficulties and suffering that they were experiencing were not a part of the day of the Lord. They were simply the persecutions and suffering that are to be expected by every believer who lives in this fallen world. And again, there are Christians who believe that when the Bible refers to a great tribulation, it's just talking about the general suffering and persecution that will always take place in the life of the church. They don't accept the fact that there will be a specific time of suffering that will come on the face of the earth that's unique to all other times of suffering. But again, that whole idea doesn't fit with the context here. It doesn't make sense with what these believers were experiencing or thinking. Paul goes on, in fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, to give some detail describing very specifically this time of turmoil under a very specific ruler who is to come. And if you want to call it the tribulation or if you want to call it the time of opposition or the time of suffering or the time of trouble or whatever, it's clear that it's a time that will be unique, set apart from all other times in history and will be triggered by certain events. And this is in fact what disturbed the Thessalonians so much. They thought that they had passed out of the general sufferings of the Christian life into this very specific time of suffering. The key question then we must ask ourselves as we look at this text is, why would that upset them so much? Why would that upset them so much as opposed to just the the kind of sufferings that Paul talks about in their life in 1 Thessalonians? Well, we can understand why it would upset him so much. We can understand it if we understand the way they understood the day of the Lord. The question we might ask in another way is, what does it mean in their minds to say that the day of the Lord has already arrived? Well, we get part of the clue just by looking at the first verse. When Paul makes reference to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and 
are being gathered together to him. The day of the Lord included what they believed had already happened, which included the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering of saints together to him. This is what we commonly refer to as the rapture. It's the very same thing that Paul had already talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. That's where Paul had told them, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you might not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who've fallen asleep, but the Lord will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is what Paul's referring to. And it's clear as you look at the context of the verse, because he uses a singular article, the, to talk about both of these concepts, the coming of the Lord and our being gathered together to Him. They're not really two separate things. They're two two notions under a single concept governed by a single article in the Greek. This is what they would have understood to be part and parcel with the day of the Lord. This is what they were looking forward to. This is, as Paul says in verse 18 of chapter 4, this is what they encouraged themselves with day after day. And in fact, everywhere Paul speaks of the second return of Christ, when he's talking to believers, it's always something that they were to look forward to. It's always something that was to be a source of encouragement. In some cases, later on, as Paul refers to the second coming of Christ, he simply refers to it as our hope. It was a hopeful event. It was an encouraging event. In fact, back in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, Paul described the appearing of Jesus Christ as a time that would grant relief to us. You remember that in verse 7? That Jesus Christ is coming, or God, he says, considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. When Jesus is revealed, it's not a time of further suffering, it's a time of relief. Even over in in 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, in verse 9, he says, uh, speaking initially to the Thessalonians, he says, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. He knew that there was wrath coming, a day of wrath, a day of judgment, the day of the Lord, but he also knew that Jesus was coming to deliver us from that. 
And as we already said in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, they were to encourage one another. Encourage one another with the thought of these words. Now all of this is key to understanding the framework or the mindset of the Thessalonians. Because in assuming that the day of the Lord had already come, or in believing, I should say, that the day of the Lord had already come, they also would have understood that this coming and being gathered together with Christ, that had already passed as well. They would have assumed that the relief that had been promised to them had already been um, exercised by Christ when he gathered the saints together to himself. And they understandably would have been disturbed by the fact that they had missed out on all of those things. It explains their grief. They're not destined for wrath. Or over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when Paul's talking about the day of the Lord, when he talks about a day of darkness, he says, you're not in the darkness, brothers, so that that day would overtake you like a thief. For you're all children of light, children of the day. And we're not of the night or of the darkness. So don't let us sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, drunk, uh, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Why? For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain, obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about their spiritual salvation. They already have that. He's talking about their deliverance from the wrath to come. This is what so disturbed them. This is what so upset them. Their clear understanding from the Apostle Paul of what this entire complex of the day of the Lord meant. And it couldn't have been just, as I said, one moment in time. It couldn't have been some, some, uh, something that flashed in the sky over their heads and then just disappeared from the earth, leaving the earth and all of its inhabitants in some ongoing, undefined state throughout all eternity if The day of the Lord was just a moment of transition from temporal to eternity. It was the beginning of the end. It was the beginning of suffering. And it was the beginning of time that Christians weren't destined for. It was the beginning of time that they were to be spared from. When Christ descends and the day of wrath begins... He gathers them to himself in the rapture. And God had not destined them for that. Even later on here in chapter 2, he alludes to this down in verses 13 and 14. How they were to be given salvation. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by God, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, to be delivered. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. They understood that. They understood that. Paul had taught them that. And now he's writing to remind them of that. So that they wouldn't be so easily duped. And he goes on to remind them 
in verses 3 and 4 and following of all the things that will take place in the day of the Lord that are not taking place around them right now as evidence of the fact that this is a ridiculous idea. The day of the Lord could not have come. All of those things that we will get into in more detail next week. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we read these things with curiosity, but also with hope and anticipation. All the swirling emotions that are within us as we look around at the decline around us in our society and world of the truth, of the glory that's to be given to you, submission to your will. And we clearly understand that you have a day of wrath and a day of judgment that is destined for all the world. That it's just and it's right. And yet we rejoice that your love and your mercy toward us extends even to the point that you would spare us that day. That you wouldn't put your own people through that gloom and that darkness. Lord, you are kind And you are gracious. The salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ not only has has pulled us out of the kingdom of darkness, but it will deliver us from the day of darkness. And we set our hope on Him. Our minds are not in an upheaval, not in distress, thinking that we must go through those days of darkness, but it is hopeful. It's at peace. It's anticipating. And so we can say with great joy in our hearts, come quickly, Lord. Come quickly that we might see you and be with you forever. That you might do your work on the face of the earth, establish your kingdom, and exalt your name. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.